Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today we have Suzanne Sherman back. You may know her as the Red Hot Chili Prepper. She's also the host of the Wasatch Report. Suzanne is also an attorney who quit her practice to raise her children. In 2013, she was way ahead of the curve, becoming a refugee from California to enjoy the peace and freedoms available in a remote location in the mountains of northeastern Utah. She makes radio appearances, hosts two shows, and speaks about self-reliance, preparedness, federalism, history, and liberty. And today we have her on to talk about her new book, Federalism, How Decentralization Can Save America. Suzanne, welcome back. Tom, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. So I had a chance to go through some of your book, and it couldn't be more timely. But for anybody who doesn't know that first word, what exactly do you mean by federalism? And how in the heck is that going to save America? Interestingly, I considered calling the book F-bomb because when you explain the word federalism to traditional conservatives, it really seems to trigger them. And federalism has really become synonymous with nationalism. So when we talk about the federal government, it has become the national government, which is now acceptable by many people to have it issue policies and laws from the centralized consolidated government that was proposed and rejected at the Philadelphia Convention. So when you say federalism, you're not talking about what the federalists at that convention wanted, nor the federal government, but the opposite. Is that right? Isn't it interesting that from the very beginnings of our system, they were using a play on words to get the policies and programs that they wanted. So the real federalists, the federalists were actually the nationalists. And then the federalists were more the Jeffersonians that wanted a federal government, which means that the government that was created was very limited with its powers, or as we use the term enumerated powers. And then such a government would have adequate resources by which to fulfill its limited responsibilities. And that's clearly an inversion of what we have today. 
So you're advocating right now that we return a lot more power to the states and allow a lot more decisions to be made at the state level and a lot less for the federal government. How do we get to the point where that wasn't the system if that's what they wanted originally? Tom, there's a school of thought that some people out there say that the Constitution was intended to do what it's doing right now and that the population was tricked into ratifying it, that the states were tricked into ratifying it because there were promises made that the the general government would be very limited in nature. And it didn't take long to see that was not the case. And now what we're seeing, uh, one of my favorite examples is a national immigration law. Why would sovereign and independent nations on a par with England and France and Spain surrender the authority to determine who lives within their states. Now everybody considers the border with Texas to be a national border. A state wouldn't have signed on to that at the same time. And when we talk about immigration, we discussed this a little bit the last time I was with you. People think that there's only a national solution or privatization, but they're ignoring the fact that the states never surrendered this. So if the states didn't delegate this power, the federal government doesn't have this power to regulate it, just like they don't have the power to regulate marijuana or any other controlled substance. Certainly the idea of federalism, the idea of local self-government with a very limited central authority, a federation, that's where the word comes from, it's starting to gain even some support on the left. I've heard Hollywood actors who you wouldn't expect talk about it. They're actually talking about secession, but we could actually avoid secession by just following the Constitution as it's written now. And what's so troubling is the fact that so many people assume, and this is, again, the justification for having these overreaches. One of the justifications for the Migratory Bird Act was that the states were incapable of managing birds that cross state lines. So we have gone from instances like that to the general government managing everything. In fact, I just received a letter the other day that I'm going to be sent a vehicle inventory and use survey from the Bureau of Transportation compliments of the United States Census Bureau. And they want to know what I've used my truck for in the last since I've had this. Uh, I have a Ford F-150 and they want to know, did I use it for private use, personal business use? And what did I transport it? What did I transport in this? They want to know the miles that I have in it, what my gas mileage is. They want to know the maintenance that I performed on this truck. You bring up a good segue there to the Commerce Clause, because anybody who's taken an interest in this knows that a large part of the federal government's activities outside the military are all justified by this tiny little clause called the Commerce Clause. And I know Judge Napolitano has spoken often about that clause and and said No, this was only intended in a very narrow way to regulate interstate commerce insofar as tariffs to make sure that the states didn't put tariffs on each other, which they were doing at the time that they wrote the Commerce Clause into the Constitution. At the same time, I had a Facebook friend several years ago, and I've been trying to hunt this guy down so I can give him credit for this. But he said that in law school, one of his law professors told him, You could drive a truck through the Commerce Clause. So what's your feeling on that? Has it been abused beyond the language that's written there? Or was it actually a poison pill to allow the federal government to become as big as they wanted it to be? 
Well, there's a reason a lot of people refer to that as one of the elastic clauses, meaning we're going to take the powers that were delegated to the general government and stretch them as far as the imagination will allow. And I think there's no more evil case than the one of Wickard versus Filburn. And that was used to grant through the Commerce Clause, the general government, the power to pretty much do anything they want to do so long as a product crosses state lines. And in the case of Wickard versus Filburn, we had a farmer who was growing wheat. This was, again, during the New Deal era. This was a farmer who was growing wheat for his own purposes. It was not even going to leave his property. And this went to the Supreme Court because the restrictions that were coming about to keep the prices at a certain level were challenged. He said, I'm never going to take this off my property. And this was how you mentioned law school. I have a chapter in my book about the malfeasance. I refer to this as the malfeasance of the legal education industry, how they teach these classes, the case law. And when we discussed that case, it was given that because the Supreme Court ruled in this manner, that because this man's act of growing wheat affected interstate commerce, they could regulate wheat that would never leave his property. And this is taught to us aspiring lawyers and future policymakers that this is simply acceptable because they ruled it is. And I can see, I think in my opinion, that's one of the most nefarious decisions that's been handed down and a perfect example of why these clauses grant the general government too much power. And this was in direct contravention to the intention of the Commerce Clause, which was really to set up a free trade zone. The other purpose of the Constitution was to provide a common defense. So if you consider keeping the original intentions in mind and what we have now, clearly we need to go back to what was intended or we're just going to see the states and local representation completely go by the wayside. I thought it was interesting that you did devote some time in your book to the way lawyers are trained, because you're not the first lawyer that's brought this up as a problem. I'm curious, though, when you do a case like that and you study the case, do you at least get the other side of the argument by studying the dissent? Or are you just ordered to download the majority decision and that's it? I went to law school when we were still actually going through shepherds to look at cases. We weren't even using the internet for that. They, I think Westlaw was coming out, but it was very expensive. And I can't speak for other law schools, but the one I went to, and, and I could say it's pretty consistent based on how other lawyers view this, is it's pretty much we discuss what the ruling was and the dissent is acknowledged, but pretty much overlooked. Never did we ever discuss original intentions or the preamble for the Bill of Rights and what the Bill of Rights was intended to do. When it comes to the intentions of the Bill of Rights, it was really glossed over once we get to the 14th Amendment, which simply is taught in law school and all the way up to law school and, and undergraduate levels as well, that the 14th Amendment, just by magic, applied the Bill of Rights to all the states. And as we know, that wasn't what the case was supposed to be at the time. But here we have it. So now if you call something a constitutional question, it's going to go before the Supreme Court. And as I explain in my book, that will even cover an issue as to whether or not waving the middle finger at a police officer is considered a constitutional right of free speech or freedom of expression. These are standards that should be handled in the local communities or in the states at best. I'm surprised it's not interstate commerce. 
So it's funny what you just said. You said that you learn all of these precedent decisions. In this case, the Supreme Court ruled thus and so. This is why this power belongs to the federal government. But it would seem logical that the beginning of that training would be, well, here's where we started. And you're saying that just never happens. No, it really doesn't. We don't get into that at all. Our very first case that I studied in law school was a contracts case where the Supreme Court was ruling on what matters when two parties enter into a contract. So we've seen now the general government ruling. I discussed the longest chapter in this book is on the Second Amendment and cases that concern firearms, because it's really considered a given that the general government, the national government, Washington, D.C., Congress, has the authority to regulate firearms. And they celebrate cases like Heller and McDonald, where the Supreme Court effectively limited what firearms are protected as a victory. And for everyone listening, before we get to the 14th Amendment, because I've got several questions about that, just so we're clear, The reason it's important that the way lawyers are trained is because these eventually become judges and all of the federal judges with very few exceptions and everybody who sits on the Supreme Court, probably with no exceptions, were originally trained in a law school. And so if you're training them that these matters are just settled, and when you look at some of the Supreme Court decisions, like the one we looked at the last time you were here, Chai Lung versus Freeman, you find, boy, they weren't settled very well, or logically, you don't need to be a lawyer to read this and say, wait a minute, none of this makes any sense. That's part of the story of how we got to the place where the federal government is in charge of everything. It's been mainly through Supreme Court decisions. And this runs counter to what happened at the convention, because Kevin Goodsman's book, James Madison and the Making of America, is so great on this because he shows how Madison tried to get a stipulation in the Constitution for the Congress to be able to veto state laws. I'm doing this on memory, but I think he brought it up like every week all summer and it got voted down, you know, 49 to five every time until the very last time it was a shutout. Even the Virginians voted against them. That's how much they were against the federal government being able to veto state laws. But in effect, they just got that through the courts. So do you see this as something that happened starting with Hamilton and his implied powers, like a slow drip, just eroding the rock away? Or were there periods where there were great leaps forward? No, I absolutely agree. This started with the Hamiltonian faction. And let me give you an example of how egregious this is, if we could turn back to the law school really quick. And when you're studying for the bar exam, I'll give you an example. We have to take a, what they call the multi-state exam. It's one day, it's a hundred multi multiple choice questions in the morning and 100 in the afternoon. And as you're studying, you a lot of people take review courses for these. And they will tell you in the review courses, hey, we know you might be stuck on time, run out of time and get caught up in some questions. So to save time, if you see a question and there are two possibilities, one being the 10th Amendment, one being the 14th Amendment. You don't even have to read the question. Just check the 14th Amendment and you'll pass the bar examination. Now, notice I use the terms pass the bar examination or at least get that question. What they're telling you here is the 10th Amendment, which Thomas Jefferson considered the cornerstone of the Constitution, is to be completely disregarded. And for the most part, we're seeing that now through the federal judiciary all the way up at the top. 
And we even see that in the states, in the state courts. I discuss a case that happened in Wisconsin in the book emanating out of a drunk driving case. And they are also saying the same thing. Look, we're going to look to the Supreme Court to see what standards are going to be applicable across the entire continental landmass for determining when a person can have a warrantless blood draw. The 14th Amendment is something we have to talk about, and there's something called the incorporation doctrine where its proponents allege that the words of the 14th Amendment incorporate the Bill of Rights into the states. So in other words, that the Bill of Rights were previously only applicable to the federal government, the Bill of Rights in the federal constitution, and that after the 14th Amendment, they then applied to the states. How do they make that case? What's in the 14th Amendment that allows them to draw this conclusion? And why are they wrong? I think a lot of people like to hang on the use of the word state that is put in the 14th Amendment, where it says no state shall. But if you look in the book, I explain the history of the 14th Amendment. And as our good friend Kevin Goodsman, in an interview, there was a great podcast with him and Tom Woods, where they explained that the sole purpose and intent of the 14th Amendment was to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of, I think it was 1866, because they feared as the some of the former Confederates that were getting elected into Congress would overturn that. So they wanted to protect the Civil Rights Act. And the sole intent and purpose was to give freed Blacks basic rights of citizenships afforded to other Americans. That was it. But th I think the folly is illustrated the folly of looking to the general government to restrain itself really comes to light when we see how the federal government has served the, as opposed to being a series of checks and balances among the three branches. The three are working together to expand the power of the federal government. And when this one branch of another says, yeah, this is okay, everybody says, we've got the supremacy clause in every federal law. And this is what I was taught even in high school on it. Federal law preempts every state law. And that's just a given as well. Nobody raises that. Let's take a short break for this important message. Most people consider it a fact of life that prices are going to go up over time. And they've never gone up as fast as they are right now. But what if I told you it wasn't always like that? that for over 100 years, prices went down in America even as the economy became more productive. Well, it's true. And as much as we like to blame the president when the economy is bad, presidents really have very little effect on our modern economy. The real culprit behind not only price inflation, but the constant booms and busts we suffer is the Federal Reserve System. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop focusing on things that don't make a difference and start focusing on what does. Whether you're worried about constantly rising prices, wage stagnation, increasing wealth and income inequality, or the massive expansion of the government's size and power, they can all be traced back to an institution the powerful would prefer you ignored. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com and find out what you should really be fighting against. And now, 
back to our episode. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, you crazy in the head. I remember sitting in high school when we're going through the Bill of Rights and then we get to the 14th Amendment. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. How does that reconcile with the 10th Amendment? It made no sense to me whatsoever, but everybody seemed so comfortable with that. I'm silently questioning myself going, what's wrong with me? Why am I the only one that doesn't understand this? And it really shook my confidence for some time. And now late in the game, I realize, yeah, my instincts were right all along. Yeah, I had the same experience with macroeconomics. <laughs> I just thought I just must not get this. This makes no sense. And I learned decades later that I was on the right track. But that's a subject for another day. Would you say it's true that the 14th Amendment does take the specific due process clause out of the Fifth Amendment of the federal constitution? And that part does apply to the states, correct? I would always say, look to the state's constitutions, and that's what you want to look to first. I would be adverse to looking to anything for that. What's problematic about the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment also is they have come up now with substance, substantive due process, and that's how we get the abortion cases. That's how we get the gay marriage cases. That's how we get all these other, I guess, social justice cases coming before the Supreme Court. And I remember sitting in law school when my professor, he literally put his hand in the air and raised it with a, the, his fingers coming apart, like to uh, illustrate something growing out of the land, like a sunflower. And he said, through the, the due process clause, and he brings up now of the 14th Amendment, rights spring forth from the Constitution, justifying, again, bringing cases like abortion before the federal judiciary. No, I agree. But let me just push back a little because I'm looking at the 14th Amendment and the section that you call out in your book, obviously correctly, is section one. This is the one where this incorporation doctrine is purported to come in. And the first part of it where it says shall not abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Well, that's in the original constitution. So that's nothing new. So that can't be conferring any new power. But when they say, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, putting aside the substantive due process, it almost seems like they wanted to say that one part of the Bill of Rights, we are going to apply to the states. But that would tell me that unless they quoted them all, this is the one they wanted to make sure was added. And in other words, this is something new. Nothing else is anything new other than, as you said, we're going to apply this to the freed slaves. And then you have this equal protection of the laws clause, which is not in the constitution. So to me, that more makes the case, the indoctrination, indoctrination, that's our, that's our school episode. The incorporation doctrine is not a valid theory because they're very specific in what they bring from the Bill of Rights. What do you think of that? I think that's a fair assumption, particularly if you look at who this was supposed to be benefiting, as we said, the freed blacks. And as we know that earlier, that they weren't subject to due process under the law and equal protection. So I, I don't think that it's, uh, it's unfair to say that, yes, that could be lifted and apply that to them because they hadn't gotten it before. I hope that makes sense. Some people might be confused. Well, hey, what's wrong with the Bill of Rights? Why don't we want the protection of the Bill of Rights for everybody in every state? What's your answer to that? 
when I first heard that in high school, I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. I can't believe people in the States didn't have the right to free speech or to have the right to practice and, and follow whatever religion they wanted or had the right to carry guns. And what happens is when they're teaching you this, they never illustrate the fact that, hey, guess what? These states already had constitutions of their own that provided this level of protection. So the fact that this was protected earlier on, it doesn't, it, the fact that they ignore this shows that they really aren't giving you the whole story. It's all of a sudden now, thanks to the 14th amendment, people have freedoms across this continental landmass that were never granted, that were never found or respected in the first place. And that's simply not true. And we're also inviting the federal government to exercise power that it wasn't given, where we could just appeal to our state governments, where most of the states, New York has the great shame of not having a version of the Second Amendment in its Bill of Rights. But it brings up another subject. All of these states have basically the Bill of Rights duplicated in their own constitution, not only states that came into the Union after the Bill of Rights was ratified, but even states, and I found one just as an example, like Montana, that came into the Union in 1889, 21 years after the 14th Amendment, they still have a Declaration of Rights in their Constitution that guarantees freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, expression and press, right to bear arms, no unreasonable searches and seizures, basically the whole Bill of Rights is duplicated and added to in Montana's constitution. Now, they wouldn't have any reason to do that if the Federal Bill of Rights already offered that protection. So at least as late as 1889, nobody was recognizing that the Federal Constitution's Bill of Rights applied to anything but the federal government. And if you follow that line of logic, there wouldn't be no need for any state constitution after it was ratified, correct? They'd say, oh, it's all been done for us. And that clearly isn't the case. Every state has its own constitution. Interestingly, you mentioned New York and the firearms laws. I believe California's constitution is also silent on firearms laws, and which raises an issue to me. What was that? Yeah, but well, California's changed quite a bit since they first joined the union. But the thing is, that was a question I've been meaning to ask you too, because it was never a delegated power. Because I used to say it's California's constitution is silent, therefore they can outright ban them if they want. But the other school of thought is if it's not in the constitution, they have no authority to regulate them anyway. So California's laws are unconstitutional by their own constitution, just something I was kicking around. Not that California cares. I haven't read California's. When this whole COVID thing started, I got very interested in state constitutions and I started reading them here and there. And basically, this is definitely true of New York. The federal constitution, as we've discussed today and on previous episodes, assumes that here's a list of powers you may exercise these powers, federal government, and anything not mentioned, you may not exercise. The state constitutions are not written that way. They're written the opposite way. You can make any law you want as long as it's not prohibited by the Bill of Rights. To me, we found out how awful a lot of our state constitutions are. I have a feeling California might be the same way. You could probably review it better than I could, but they still do have bills of rights. And you could make a pretty good argument that 
COVID restrictions violated several of the articles of those in every state. But getting back to what you were talking about with especially the right to bear arms, this is a mistake that you think, and I agree with you, that conservatives make as far as how they try to protect the right to bear arms. Absolutely. And being from California, I'm very familiar with the gun rights advocates running to the federal judiciary to address California's firearms laws, saying it's a violation of the Second Amendment. Well, going back to where we started, as we understand now, the Second Amendment was instilled to prohibit the general government from regulating firearms because they do have the authority to arm the militia, but the founding generation feared that they might also take that opportunity to perhaps disarm the militia. So again, this was a hands-off area to the federal government. The 10th Amendment now comes into operation, meaning that California has the right, the power, I don't like using the term right for governments, but has the power, the authority to regulate firearms as they see fit. And that's independent of the of the discussion we had with regard to their constitution. So when you run to the federal judiciary, For California firearms laws, you are acknowledging the fact that the federal government or the false notion that the federal government has the power to regulate firearms because that is, in fact, what they're doing. And when the city of McDonald, that case uh, versus Chicago came about, that was incorporating the Second Amendment to the states. The problem with that is when Heller questioned what firearms are protected from the general government or uh, what firearms are protected, I should say, from the sec- for the, by the Second Amendment, the Scalia, who wrote the opinion for the court, said that handguns were protected. When he said handguns are protected, what does that tell you? That the gun control advocates are going to say, see, Heller only protects handguns, therefore we can ban these assault rifles, which we're seeing. And one ban in Massachusetts was justified when it was upheld by a federal judge using Heller. And the language in Heller limiting the protections to the Second Amendment of the Second Amendment only to handguns, which, as we know, it's a restriction because when you call something a constitutional right, the politicians and the judges then say rights are not without limitations. They're subject to reasonable regulations. And that's how we ended up with 20,000 firearms laws. And. Just to make it clear, are you saying by your interpretation of the Constitution that the incorporation doctrine of the 14th Amendment is foo-foo? <laughs> that <laughs> polite way of putting it, sure. <laughs> in a state like New York, with no protection of the right to keep and bear arms in our Constitution, that the state legislature has a perfectly valid authority and would not violate the Second Amendment by banning gun ownership entirely. Yeah. And it's really hard to go about that because it's going to result in policies that we really don't like. But the problem is, if the federal government takes over all of these areas, you're not going to have any place to go to if you prefer the firearms laws focusing on that for a different state. And I'll speak from experience. I left California to uh, the state of Utah. And interestingly enough, because our firearms laws are so much better, I would say that our constitution is worse than California's, which is silent on it, where you can make the argument that they have zero authority to regulate it. Utah's acknowledges that we have the right to keep and bear arms, but the legislature has the power to make laws regarding firearms. So it's essentially a useless clause. 
Well, they can regulate it to the point of absurdity before <laughs> somebody, and all these Supreme Court decisions are the same way. There's all this language in there that muddies the water, I guess is the word. Let me ask you this. I want people to get the book, but in case we don't sell 330 million copies of it, how in the heck do we get back to anything like the constitution you're talking about and achieve federalism given everything we've talked about today. What I hope to illuminate in this book was the argument that we might not like all the policy outcome decisions in each state. It's really important to understand that the closer we are to our representative officials, right now at the federal level, it's one representative in the House for I think 750,000 people. At least in the states, you can have the opportunity to be heard at a more reasonable level Getting back to where we came from on this is what was intended is really getting people to understand the benefit of having alternatives. So if one state is going to, for instance, say we are not going to permit people of the same sex to get married, you have the option to move to a state that is not going to have that prohibition, that's going to respect your right to enter into a partnership with the person of your choosing regardless of their sexual orientation. You have the possibility to move to a state like I did, leaving California to Utah, where you can carry a firearm without a concealed carry permit. You have the opportunity to go to a state that is more friendly to religious organizations. For instance, we saw in New York the shutdown of the churches due to COVID and the challenge was taken to the Supreme Court. And when it was thrown out, everybody celebrated or the conservatives like to celebrate saying that the Supreme Court came in and said, these emergency measures are unacceptable. But when you roll the dice like that, you're taking a, such an a chance because what if they had gone the other way and then mandatory lockdowns and keeping people from going to church could be the law of the land in air quotes, much, much like Obergefell. And so tell me how that's a good idea. You have nowhere to go if we expect nine politically connected lawyers in black costumes to decree what the law of the land is for 350 million people. It really is much more reasonable. I mean, I'm all for secession and you've got liberals and conservatives both talking about it. The way they word it now is national divorce. But what if you just said, look, if you want to live in Texas, you're not going to like the abortion laws or the immigration laws or the gun laws. And if you live in New York, you're not going to like the immigration laws, the abortion laws or the gun laws the other way. You can have what you want. Yes, there are people in Texas who are liberal who either are going to have to vote with their feet and leave and vice versa in New York, people like me that don't like the laws here, but that might be something that's more reasonable and less disruptive than quote unquote national divorce, especially seeing that you still have liberals and conservatives in every state anyway. So you can find your optimal, not perfect, but optimal place where it's just the right mix. And when we got 50 states, the possibilities seem endless. 
Right. And when you expect everything to come from Washington, D.C., this is why we're seeing everybody losing their mind every presidential election cycle. We're seeing the violence increasing. I mean, people are being subjected to violence for going to political rallies. People are being canceled for having a difference of opinion because every point of contention is it's it's going to be one way or the other. And that's why people, as I say in the book, this is tormenting not only our, this is tormenting our very souls. And when we're talking about issues like abortion, when we're talking about issues like gay marriage, personally, I like the less government involvement, the better. And I know you agree with that as well. And if we can get people to move at least from the D.C. solutions and the searches for solutions from Washington, D.C., and then getting people to understand, let's get things more to the state, that could be a starting point for people to understand, hey, or ask the questions, what really is the proper role of government? So we've got this peeling of the onion, so to speak, from the DC layer to the state layer, to what's really a, a way that we want to be governed, and maybe less government overall, even at my local level, is a better idea. Ultimately, I hope this book paves the way for that line of thinking. I think it does. And a great point there at the end, a lot less hating each other if we could get to this place. Folks, the book is called Federalism, How Decentralization Can Save America. It'll be on the show notes page of this episode. And Suzanne, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.